We're going to stay standing this morning as we read uh, the word of the Lord in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, or yes, 1 through 10. Let's read this together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine had run out, the mother of Jesus said to, them, said to him, they have no wine. And he said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And he said to the servants, fill these jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And then he said, now draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, it had now become wine. And, didn't, and, and he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water out knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, they then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This was, I'm going to add the next verse, even though we don't have it in there. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee that manifested his glory. And all those who saw believed in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the truth of your word. Um, we thank you for what you invite us into when it comes to, to seeing you and knowing you and joining you and experiencing you. Uh, an incredible way. We thank you for the, for the opportunity we had to worship you today, um, for those that were leading and serving and the capacity to, to lift you, make you known and lift you high and that you might draw all people to yourself. And we pray that that happen in our, in our midst today, that we are drawn to you. Uh, Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray that, that this sermon is a, uh, the, this one you preach, the second one that your spirit preaches is actually far more profound and applicable than anything I would say and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Um, it is my joy to be with you today, to be here. Uh, normally I'm Sundays in Lexington, Kentucky at Commonwealth City Church. Um, but after yesterday's football game, I need to get out of Lexington. You know, like it was, it was tough on us. It was cold. It was snowy. And it was despairing for, for, for us. But no, we, we, we enjoy uh, I enjoy cheering on the cats, but I say to people all the time, I don't care where your fan affiliation is. Um, when you think of the University of Kentucky, whether it's to boo or to cheer, um, which hopefully it's mostly to cheer, always, always throw up a cheer prayer for, for us as we're continuing to plant pastor church that meets right on that campus and engage with so many students. In fact, today, if you saw the events of this week in Lexington, there's a, a big, just unfortunate event that even took place. Uh, UK's campus this week where a young lady was, uh, was really, had some really harmful things said to her and communicated to her uh, because of the color of her skin. It happened right in our yard. And um, our hearts just are, are lamenting with that, that, that both oppressed and oppressor uh, recognize the grace that we have in Jesus. And, and that's not the only ministry we have at campus, obviously. We, we have a ton. And so I just ask you to, to always keep us in your thoughts and prayers. Um, today we're in John chapter 2. I know that we've been walking through here at, at Hope Church um, uh, talking about experiencing God. Is that correct? You're nodding along with me here. We're talking about experiencing God and the seven uh, kind of different focuses or principles of that. And so when, when my father called me last night, he, you know, he said, I want you to come preach. And I was like, what are you all talking about? He's like, well, we've been talking about experiencing God. And I was like, well, I want to, I guess I'll choose a text where people get to experience Jesus. And we'll walk through this together. Um, for me, it had been a little bit since I'd been in this, this text in John chapter two, maybe you as well. I uh, just want to give you some background on this, on this, this story in the Bible. This is a uh, 
the very beginning of John's gospel. Now, John's gospel is unique. It's the, um, there are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they were written many years, not, not a ton, but usually at least 20 or 30 years after Jesus had lived and been crucified and resurrected. Uh, they were uh, essentially letters or arguments of why we can trust Jesus to be God. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what's called, are what's called the synoptic gospels, meaning that they essentially take the exact same stories um, from, and there's a few differences here and there, but from maybe different vantage points or arguing through a different lens, you know, one of them maybe arguing to Luke is more of a, of a really in a, a discourse from, from a Gentile perspective, whereas Matthew and Mark have a more Jewish perspective. Uh, Mark, or who most people think is John Mark, as you see in the book of Acts, being the author there, is kind of buddied up with Peter, and so the book of Mark is kind of the perspective of Jesus through the person of Simon Peter. Um, and so there's all these different kind of insights that we glean through the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and most of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of let you arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is God through the stories of the scriptures, through how they unfold. They talk of his, his divine birth, they talk of his youth, they talk of his ministry, um, and ultimately, you know, kind of the, the all, all coming together at the crucifixion and then the resurrection, and there's this aha moment, ideally, as you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's like, okay, I can point, he's walking on water, he's healing people, you know, this has to be the son of God, and then he defeats death, and it's like, aha, you know, it's this, it's kind of the way the argument's set up. John's different in the sense that right out of the gate in John chapter one, he doesn't deal with the birth story. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word, Jesus, put on flesh and dwelt among us, and he, may, he leaves no room for interpretation later in the story that Jesus is God. He tells you that right out of the gate. And so in John chapter two, he's already laid the groundwork that this Jesus we're talking about is God in flesh. And when God in flesh arrives at different events and different occasions, we can expect different outcomes. And this is the first sign of Jesus's lordship over created things and really his, his authority on earth. In fact, the book of John is kind of split in half. The first half is really his signs, like the signs and wonders. And the second half are, are many of his teachings. Uh, it's the way he's instructing the, the apostles and the disciples. And the entire book is really comes to a conclusion in John chapter 20. And he says, John writes, the author writes, I write these things so that you might believe in him and in him find life in his name. That's the entire thesis of the book of John. And it starts off right here with this miracle, the first miraculous sign that Jesus gives in John chapter two, a story that many of us have heard, but we're gonna revisit today. Um, Jesus is invited at this, to this wedding with his mom and our first glimpse of him is he's sitting around doing what? Nothing, right? Like he's just there. He's kind of like me at a wedding. It's like, I don't really want to dance. My wife might make me dance, you know, like um, I do want to dance with her, but it's like, you know, I gotta, I just gotta find my groove and get kind of, I don't I just want to kind of stay in the shadows a little bit. You know, I don't want to see him being going to the buffet three times, right? I just want to maybe a time and a half, like send somebody else. Like I kind of want to stay out of the focus in the wedding day. It's not my day. It's not my party. I'm just there to cheer people on. And you find Jesus in this moment kind of doing nothing. Since he was invited to a wedding with his disciples, when the wine ran out, this is in verse two, the mother of Jesus said to them, or said to him, she complained to her son, they're out of wine, they don't have any more wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
Now, I've heard pastors say this before. Uh, if you want to not be Christ-like to your wife, don't say this. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay, like probably not a phrase that, that goes well in my house. My hour has not yet come. Now, what he's alluding to is there's gonna be a great work that he's here to accomplish, but it ain't at a wedding. The point is not for him to make a wedding better. The point is for him to save sinners and, and, and to be a sacrifice that's pleasing to the Lord on our behalf. And then his mother, and moms can do this sometimes, can't they? Like, have you ever noticed that, that maybe your mom or, or, or in our house, our house mom, my wife, there's uh, suggestions that you are, are allowed to consider and there are suggestions that you just have to do, right? So, so Mary says to Jesus, they're out of wine. He says, what's that have to do with me? And then she looks at the servants. I can kind of see her snap. Pay attention to whatever he says. Okay, now the first thing we're gonna look at here is Jesus' character in this story is that he, he's in attendance. He's maybe reclined at a table. He appears to be at ease. But I'm gonna ask you an experience of God question. Was he at work at the wedding? Always. Always. He's always at work. And so even if he appears to be relaxing, he's at work. In fact, the psalmist writes in Psalm 121 that the keeper over the people of God, the keeper over Israel, he never slumbers or sleeps. He is always at work. And so Jesus kind of, you know, rises to the occasion, right? He, he does what his mom tells him. And it's something that's true about, the, about even the, our holy Lord is that he uh, honored his parents. He honored his father and his mother. That's a little you know, drive-by for you children in the room. Actually, spoiler alert, that doesn't stop at 18, all right? Like you get to honor people for the rest of your life when it comes to following Jesus. And so in verse seven, he, he rises to the occasion they give a little insight here. There were six stone water jars uh, for the rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Um, and so Jesus says to the servants, fill these jars with water. Now let's take into the context here. Are these Jesus's servants? No, they're the servants of, of whoever is throwing this event. Likely the father of the bride that's throwing this whole big party. These are the servants that work for him. So they're not Jesus' servants, but he recognizes these servants and he says, fill the jars with water. Now, something that um, also could be happening in the context of this story is that their work on the wedding, because remember, they're out of wine, which means that the wedding is probably coming to a conclusion, which means that the party's starting to die down, which means that they probably have a full to-do list. Now, if you've ever been part of the help at a wedding, you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? So, so it, it falls on somebody to take care of everything. Now, whether they hire people to do that or you get uh, corralled into it, you know, I like to say like the day that I bought a truck uh, was the day that I got more text messages and phone calls about needing people to help them move, right? Like just kind of came with it. And it's like, hey, could, I, could we borrow your truck for this? You know, and it's like, if you're at a wedding and the, and the party starts to shut down, somebody's got to, you know, I don't know if they didn't have plastic tables, but somebody's got to break down tables. Somebody's got to put up chairs. Somebody's got to clean dishes. Some guy's got to do all these things. And in this case, they drew attention to these water jars, which means it says these jars weren't used for necessarily for, for weddings. They weren't intended for weddings. They were used for Jewish rites of purification, which means that there are a lot of rules around them. There were a lot of expectations around them. There were a lot of specifics around them. And chances are, the fact that they've drawn the attention, the author has drawn the attention to these water jars, chances are they were already in process of being restored 
to their intended use, which is for rites of purification as entering the temple. And Jesus looks at them and he looks at the servants and he says, fill the jars with water. So the first thing we need to recognize here in this text is when Jesus asks his servants something, it's gonna require flexibility. You know who his servants are? Me and you. And when he asks us to do something, you know what it requires? Flexibility. It requires an open-handedness with our own plans and with our own way and with what we think is best. And it requires us to consider that Jesus might actually know what he's talking about and that we should be willing to be flexible. I talk all the time at our church, even, even in our family, that I want to be open-handed with things, meaning I don't want to hold on tightly to things as if they belong to me, that I get to, with open hands, manage things for the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus has the ability to initiate um, things for you. Like, hey, I, you know, many, many of you have journeyed in life. Who, where am I supposed to go to college? Or where, where am I supposed to work? Who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to live? Yada, yada. He can take your standstill and tell you which way to walk. He certainly can do that. Many of us have testimonies of that. He also can edit where you're walking, right? He can edit what you're doing and say, hey, you're doing that maybe go over here and do this. <laughs> hey, you're, you're pursuing that? Maybe let's redirect that pursuit. Most of my journey with Christ is not him moving me from a standstill. It's him moving me from the motion that I'm already in. In fact, we call that repentance. That when we're walking one way and he desires us to walk another, we repent and follow Christ. He has the ability to initiate our movement he also has the ability to edit it. And when we're gonna be a servant of Christ, we have to be what? Flexible to how he might edit our life. You always have to be willing to be a servant. You always have to be willing to change your plans for Jesus when he asks. You always have to be willing to change your plans, plans for, your plans for Jesus when he asks. And he asks this of these servants. Fill these jars with water, verse seven. And then check out the end. And if you're an underliner or a circler in your Bible, unless you're reading digitally, maybe you can highlight it. Um, they filled them up to what? To the brim. Now I know this church celebrated VBS this summer. And uh, we talked about, one of the things we talked about, my girls came to VBS here at, at Hope one night uh, before we went on vacation this summer. And I see our, our VBS shirts bouncing around the house all the time. And one of the things that was, that was written on the shirt is that we're people that go what? The extra mile. We are called to always be people that fill it all the way to the brim. Now I have, I have been both as a son, doing chores around the house, as an employee, as a friend, I've been people that do the bare minimum before. And when I do the bare minimum for people, it's not loving, it's not kind, it's certainly not generous. In fact, it is almost an annoyance when you ask someone to do something and they do the absolute bare minimum required. And this is a kingdom principle, right? To always go the extra mile, to do more than what's required of you, to do more than the bare minimum. And you see these servants, they're tired, they're worn out, they've been working for their master, the master of the ceremony, Probably, like, you know, for us, it's like, you know, you're in a wedding venue, you might do a little stuff through the week in terms of getting ready for a wedding in 2022 or 2023. Um, you're certainly piling everything in there the moment that you have access to the venue and, and making sure everything's done. But these servants, this kind of party, this kind of occasion, they've probably been working at this not just for weeks, but for months, maybe even a year. It's been a long time coming and they're reaching the end of the whole shindig and Jesus, not the, not the master, 
of the ceremony, obviously the master of their hearts, but Jesus looks at them and says, would you do one more thing? Would you fill these jars up? And if ever somebody not obeying even their rightful master in the context would ever do the bare minimum, wouldn't this be a moment? But these servants do what? Fill it all the way to the brim. Dallas Willard, a famous theologian, writes that when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, that the gospel of Jesus is always opposed to our earning. It's always opposed to us earning grace and love and faith, but it's never opposed to our effort. Never opposed to our effort, that we take everything we have. Just like Paul would write in Colossians, 1 Corinthians, we take everything we have and we do it all as if we're doing it for the glory of God himself. We are people, servants of Christ, that should always be people that fill it all the way to the brim, that go the extra mile. Now check this part out. Verse eight, after they'd filled it to the brim, he says to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I used to love to make Kool-Aid. And I don't know how you make Kool-Aid, but there are right and wrong ways. Just wanna go, go and tell you that from a, an authority standpoint today. There are right and wrong ways. The wrong way to make Kool-Aid is to pour all the water in and then pour the mix in, okay? Now if you do it that way, there's opportunity for repentance today that you can make Kool-Aid the right way. And the right way is to get the sweetened Kool-Aid and a thing of sugar, okay? So these things work, these things work together. Um, you warm up a little bit of water, okay? I'm just, this is, you warm up a little bit of water. You pour in all the mix into your pitcher. Then you pour in the little bit of hot warmed water. Go ahead and mix it up that way. It melts everything perfectly. It's nice and smooth, melts all the sugar. Now, if you're, this is, this is almost like eating the brownie mix before you bake the brownies. If you're, if you're, you know, real sneaky, you can take a little drink of that super concentrated extra sweet Kool-Aid. It's, am it's amazing. Um, <laughs> then you fill up the cold water on top of that. Now, I don't know if that's me learning from Jimmy Marquardt from youth ministry or me developing my own, you know, youth ministry habits for years, but this is the right way to make Kool-Aid. But I was always amazed uh, when I would pour, you know, you, you wouldn't really, if, if you threw the mix in, maybe you had like a, not a glass pitcher, but a plastic pitcher, you wouldn't really see the, the mix at the bottom, but then you'd pour the water in. And so you're watching clear water come out of, 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 you know, your measuring cup or whatnot, or out of the sink. And as it hits the mix, what happens? It, it dissolves, but it turns color, right? So it's, it's clear water going in, it's red water rising. And cherry Kool-Aid's the best, which is why we use red water. Um, so red water's starting to rise up in the pitcher and it's like this happens. Clear water's going out, red water's filling up. And for years, I had this in my mind when these guys filled up these water pitchers. For years, that there was some like secret Jesus juju going on where he like already had the wine ready to go. And as these guys filled these jars with water, they actually were being filled up with the best wine. Okay, and I don't know if you ever thought about, imagine that in this, this context of this story. And again, I don't know if it was my years of making Kool-Aid or what, but that's kind of always how I thought this story happened. But as you read the text, he doesn't say that. He says, fill the jars with water. And then he immediately says, draw some out. He doesn't say that it turned into wine there, does he? Draw some out. Now again, let's put, let's put some context here. You're, you're a servant. You're listening to Jesus. You're being flexible with your plans. You're willing to change your plans to honor Christ. You're going the extra mile, filling it all the way to the brim. And now this guy says to you, take some of that water. You just put water in it. Take some of that water, take it to your boss and tell him it's the best wine. Take some of that water out and take it to your boss. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty fearful for me. That sounds pretty offensive. That as my master or my boss has requested more to drink, if I were to bring him up a glass of dirty water, as if I had brought him the best wine. And so let's keep reading. When the master of the feast, verse 9, tasted, the water had now become wine, and he did not know where it came from. And then there's this incredible part in the parentheses. Now, if you're, again, a note taker in your Bible, this is a place to put a star. I have a star beside mine right here, this parenthetical reference. Though the servants who had drawn out the water knew. They knew exactly where this had come from. And here's a principle for us today as we experience God in the world that we live in. No one is more keenly aware of the difference that Jesus makes than servants. No one is more keenly aware of the difference that Christ can make in a life than somebody that serves him. If you truly serve Jesus, then your life is filled with testimony after testimony after testimony of the difference that only Christ can make. That's, that's just the truth of following Jesus. And these guys took a cup of water. Now, it probably wasn't a glass goblet. It was probably a stone goblet. Took a cup of water. And somewhere in the journey, somewhere in the journey of dipping this water out of this purification jar and walking all the way up to their master, probably sitting in a high, lofty place at the head of a table, almost a thing that would de- almost depict like, like a throne, somewhere in between the journey of dipping water out of a jug And taking it to their master, somewhere in the journey, that water had become wine. Let me give you a little hint. This is what your effort's always gonna look like. When you are called to follow Jesus, he's gonna ask you to do things that don't make any sense, that that don't, don't hit every, check every box of logic. And somewhere in the journey of you trusting him, he will take your effort, he will take your obedience, he will take your servanthood and he will give you an outcome that you couldn't have gotten yourself. Somewhere in the journey, he'll take the best thing you can offer, which is a glass of water obediently, and he will turn it into the best wine you've ever had. That's the promise of living a kingdom life. Does that mean that there's prosperity attached to everything? No. Well, his definition of it, sure. Maybe not ours. Does that mean that everything's always gonna work out for us? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is that when it comes to the outcome of your efforts, when it comes to the outcome of serving Jesus, the best you have to offer is a cup of dirty water. That's all you got. But what he can do with a willing heart and an obedient heart and a heart that serves him is to take everything we have to offer and make it something that only his kingdom could establish. Now let's get real practical with this. When it comes to parenting, best you have is a glass full of water, but Jesus can turn it into wine. When it comes to your marriage, loving your spouse, the best you have is a glass full of water. And you should, you should do the best you can with it. You should be an extra mile person. You should listen up when Jesus asks something of you. You should, you should in spite of your weariness and your exhaustion, be willing to change your plans. But the only person that's responsible for the outcome is Christ. And so when it comes to your marriages, when it comes to your families, when it comes to your work, the best we have, the best we have is just what these servants had, obediently carrying water and trusting God to turn it into wine. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter four, the apostle Paul says this. He says, this is how you should regard us. This is how you should regard me as a servant of Christ 
and as a steward of the mysteries of God. You wanna know what that means? That we're people that say yes to what Jesus asks us to do and then what we steward is an outcome that only he can provide. That's it. As a pastor, best I have is to be obedient and carry a glass of water. But the best Jesus has is to transform what I think is my best effort into something that only his kingdom can provide. It's turning water into wine. And when it comes to following Christ, you're gonna have testimony after testimony, story after story, example after example, and experience after experience where he took something that you thought was just a cup of water and he turned it into the best thing imaginable into a glass of wine. And uh, I just want to encourage you in that today as we're people that are saying like, we want to experience God. We want to experience the fullness of God. We want to experience his kingdom. Well, if you're somebody that experiences God, we, we recognize these things through this text today. We know that he's at work. We know that when he asks us to do something, it's going to require something of us. It's going to require obedience. It's going to require servanthood. But we also know that when it comes to outcomes, the most predictable outcome is to say yes obediently and to trust God to be the transformer, the provider, the promise maker and promise keeper and the one that takes dirty water and always turns it into wine. And so the question that we ask you today is what's he asking of you? Or is he asking you to trust him with that kind of trust? Or is he asking you to trust him as you carry um, whatever burden it is that you have or whatever obedience, looks, whatever obedience looks like to you? Where is Jesus asking you to trust him and to trust him with the outcome? Um, to be exactly what he intends for it to be for you, for your family, and for those around you, but most importantly, for his glory. You know, Jesus didn't, let's, let's be clear here, and this, this, that's why I read verse 11 at the beginning. Jesus didn't turn water into wine um, to make the servants feel good. He didn't do that so that the servants might be honored. He didn't do that so the, king, so the master of the ceremonies or the, the, the man that threw the party um, could get celebrated. He did that so that his glory might be known and so that those might believe in him. And the exact same thing is true for us. When we obediently follow Christ, when we say yes to what he's asking of us, when we walk faithfully carrying cups of water, the outcome is not so that we're impressed. It's so that he's glorified and honored and known in our midst. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for today. And the invitation for us today is just to say yes to what it means to follow you, to what it means to be open-handed with uh, that which we think we possess or that which we think we have or that which we think we're able in and just to say, Lord, like we wanna, we're willing to change our plans to honor you. Inconvenience us for your kingdom, Jesus. We say yes to be extra mile, full to the brim people. Um, and Lord, we, we also say that expecting. We say that expecting you to take the, the life and the obedience and the effort you're calling us to give for your kingdom. We say yes to you expecting that you take our best effort and you create an outcome that only you could create. You create a possibility that only you create. You create provision that only you could create. You author transformation that only you could create. And that the end of you being on display is not for us to be known. It's not for us to be celebrated. It's not for us to be applauded. It's for your glory to be known and for people to come to know you. So Lord, we ask for you to do that in our midst. Make us a people that say yes to following you. Make us a people that say yes to being willing to be inconvenienced. Make us a people that say yes to carrying a bit of your glory, rightfully stewarding it, stewarding this mystery down here on earth so that more might come to know you. Let's in your name we pray. Amen.